Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to do a talk specifically on the respiratory drugs. This obviously is a, a very in-depth topic in terms of the respiratory system, mainly because as anesthesia providers, that's the main system I feel like we're dealing with. And we want to do that system justice on a later talk where we're going to go through the actual physiology and pathophysiology of the different diseases that can occur in the lungs themselves. I feel like that'll be a several session topic that we want to go through. But specifically for today, we want to focus more on the respiratory drugs that we're going to see patients on a lot of times with either COPD or asthma. But just a quick little overview here before we go into that. So some of the diseases are going to be pulmonary hypertension, which obviously can be caused by a backup of blood flow from the left side of the heart. You can have some arterial hypertension in the pulmonary system. You can have some thromboemboli pulmonary disease itself. That pulmonary vascular resistance can be increased by the different things that we do, such as hypercarbia, acidosis, hypoxemia. So just keep in mind that how we manage the vent will affect that significantly, especially with the different drugs such as nitrous oxide, ketamine, and desflurane are three big ones that will increase pulmonary vascular resistance. Big things that we need to watch out for are going to be a bronchospasm or a laryngospasm. And basically, these two we'll, we'll quickly go through. And again, we'll go through more in depth later. But basically, bronchospasms where you have your, your smooth muscles and your bronchi that are going to be contracting. Signs and symptoms of this are going to be a really increased peak pressure with a normal plateau pressure. And you're not going to have the ability to squeeze and ventilate the bag. And so your entitled CO2 is going to be elevated with an increased alpha angle. So basically, it's not going to have that nice little box shape. It's going to be like more like a, a fin shaped. And they're also going to have some decreased tidal volumes as well if they're on pressure control. For these patients, you want to increase their FiO2 to 100%. You want to make sure you give them enough time to exhale, deepen their anesthesia whenever, whenever you're having these, these spasms. And we're going to get into the meds here in a little bit, but you want to give a beta 2 agonist, which is going to cause that bronchodilation. So the first beta-2 agonist I think everybody's mind jumps to is going to be albuterol. That's a really quick, short-acting beta-2 agonist We'll get into the actual specifics of this in a second, but just keep in mind that whenever you have a bronchospasm occur, that's going to be your number one drug you want to go to. You can also throw in an anticholinergic medication as well, such as ipotropium, and we're going to go into this a little bit later as well, but it's a short-acting anticholinergic drug as well that's going to decrease the amount of bronchoconstriction that you're going to see as well. You may have to move into giving some epi or some hydrocortisone. And you might even need to move into giving some nebulized racemic epi as well. And again, we're going to go into all these medications here in more detail. I just want to give you a quick idea of one of the things that can happen during our anesthesia that would warrant the use of these medications. So even though we don't want to talk about a lot of the diseases themselves, we want to focus on two of the diseases today, which are asthma and COPD, and how the drugs that we're going to talk about will affect these. So just before we go into the drugs, the differences between asthma and COPD, asthma is a more intermittent airflow obstruction, whereas COPD is a progressively worsening airflow obstruction. Asthma basically has improvement in airway obstruction with bronchodilators and steroids, whereas 
the COPD is going to be more just the bronchodilators that you're going to see. And we're going to get into those medications specifically here as we go through this talk. In terms of the inflammation, the cellular inflammation with asthma is going to include eosinophils mainly, and then mast cells, T lymphocytes, and neutrophils in more severe disease. So just think eosinophils is the main inflammatory cell that you're going to be dealing with in patients with asthma. Whereas in COPD, you're going to see neutrophils, macrophages, CD8, T lymphocytes, and eosinophils are going to be all prominent. So that's the biggest difference here is asthma is specifically an eosinophil big player compared to COPD has all those, those cells that are going to be causing the inflammatory response. With COPD, you also might find some emphysema as well. And then with asthma, you're going to find some airway remodeling. So with that being said, we really want to go into the different respiratory treatments that you would see for these different patients with either asthma or COPD and how the medications that we give will affect these patients. First, let's look at a general overview of these medications and think about why do we like to give these respiratory drugs as an inhalation. This is the best drug delivery for drugs that work on the airway. You think about for asthma patients or COPD patients, this is going to minimize the systemic effects of giving these medications because we're giving them inhaled. Think about your beta-2 agonists or your steroids, corticosteroids. Those can have systemic effects. If you give them via inhalation, you can minimize your systemic effects. You should remember that only 10 to 20% actually enters the airways when using a normal pressurized inhaler. 80% is usually swallowed. This is more the pharmacy side of things, but just so you're aware, the diameter of the particles is really important. They should be around two to five micrometers in diameter. Not that we have anything to do with that, but keep that in mind just because if it has any larger of a molecule, then it's just going to settle on the upper airway and not actually get to the location that we're trying to affect. If it's any smaller, then it will just be exhaled and again, won't have any effect. Using a large volume spacer reduces the drug deposited in the oral pharynx and limits the amount that is swallowed which again will limit the systemic effects and will also increase what we're trying to do in getting that into the airway. Now that we have kind of an overview of what we're trying to do or how these medications work, let's move into specific medications. So first let's start with bronchodilators. The idea here is to relax the constricted airway smooth muscle. These will be beta-2 adrenergic agonists. Remember beta-1, one heart, beta-2, two lungs. So these are beta-2 adrenergic agonists. So this is going to be a sympathomimetic, which will activate your adenylocyclase, which makes cyclic AMP, and then will activate your PKA, which causes the relaxation of your bronchial smooth muscle. It will also inhibit mast cell mediator release to treat acute inflammation, so this is going to be for acute inflammation. Important that you know that, not chronic inflammation. It will also decrease cholinergic neurotransmission, which will increase your mucociliary clearance. So this will be important for their mucus and getting the mucus out of the airway. So it will decrease your bacterial adherence and it will decrease your neutrophil function. In addition, you can also give glucagon, which will increase your cyclic AMP through activating your adenylocyclase. So these will have less side effects when inhaled. Again, like I mentioned earlier, this is one of the reasons that we like to give these medications to the inhalation method. The side effects systemically will be muscle tremors, 
from skeletal muscle beta-2 receptors. Also, you can get tachycardia from the atrial beta-2 receptors and also some tachycardia from the vasodilation tachycardia reflex. You can get hypokalemia due to affecting the skeletal muscle reuptake of potassium and then also some hypoxemia due to the increased VQ mismatch when you are reversing some of this hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. I know with a patient that is hyperkalemic, this is not the main way that we'll treat that, but I know that they have suggested using albuterol just because it does have this effect on the potassium. And so this is another therapy that they can use in coordination with some other ones if a patient is hyperkalemic. Awesome. So different types of beta-2 agonists. We have what we're going to talk about today, either short-acting or long-acting, and they're abbreviated as SABA or LABA, basically S-A-B-A for short-acting beta agonist and L-A-B-A for long-acting beta agonist. So the main short-acting beta agonist is going to be albuterol. I think we all have heard of albuterol, used albuterol, see its use. It basically is really good at acute situations, especially types of asthma exacerbations, COPD exacerbations. We give albuterol to have that very quick bronchodilation occur, which is going to relax those bronchioles and open up the airway. So how this obviously works is it binds to beta-2 receptors on the muscle cells themselves in the bronchial area, as well as the epithelial, the endothelial, and really all the airway cells that have beta-2. And so that's why you see those other effects that Tanner talked about before of not just having the bronchial dilation, but also having the increased mucociliary clearance, the decreased bacterial adherence, the decreased neutrophil function, et cetera. So you kind of have all those effects. So these can be combined with short-acting anticholinergics, and the main one is going to be ipotropium that we would give, and we'll get into the pathophysiology of that here in a little bit. Uh, other short-acting ones besides albuterol are going to be levalbuterol and pyrbuterol, but the main one that I feel like we give a lot of times is albuterol. In terms of long-acting, so they do the same thing. They bronchodilate, but they last for usually longer than 12 hours. So they're really good at reducing air trapping and exacerbations that can occur. You think of air trapping, usually think of COPD patients. So these are really good for COPD patients in terms of their daily treatment and asthma patients with their daily treatment. These also improve the exercise tolerance of these patients. And it's important here that we don't use it alone for asthma patients. And what I mean by that is we're going to get into the other treatments that we can do for a patient with asthma. And it's basically because while this causes bronchodilation, it doesn't treat the chronic inflammation that occurs. There are things that show that it can treat acute inflammation, but not chronically. So these patients with asthma that have the chronic inflammation, if you give a long-acting beta agonist, it's not going to help with that side of things. So two examples of long-acting beta-2 agonists are going to be submeterol and formoterol. Yeah, you can combine these with long-acting anticholinergic drugs, such as teotropium or even a corticosteroid, which we'll talk about here later as well. Basically, what the point is of these medications is you can either give a short-acting beta agonist for a very acute event, it can help with some acute inflammation, but these long-acting ones don't really help with the chronic inflammation, but they last for usually greater than 12 hours in terms of causing the bronchodilation. And so usually you can have these patients on once or twice a day on these long-acting beta-2 agonists in terms of the, the daily treatment for either asthma or COPD. Next, let's discuss inhaled corticosteroids. These really have no short-term benefit on airway function in true COPD, but if they have asthma as well, then it may have some benefits. In true COPD, they don't really have an anti-inflammatory effect. So keep in mind that this will not have really short-term benefits for your true COPDers. 
However, if you give this long-term, it can decrease the number of COPD exacerbations, and then you can give oral corticosteroids to treat the acute exacerbation. Local side effects of these inhaled corticosteroids, you can have a cough and you can also have pharyngeal candidiasis. Systemic side effects of these inhaled corticosteroids, keep in mind that with these steroids, you are concerned about their HPA suppression with these patients presenting for surgery and with the surgical stress, that is going to be a consideration that you'll want to keep in mind. You can have growth suppression, osteoporosis, glaucoma, cataracts, metabolic abnormalities, and increased bruising with these inhaled corticosteroids. So in terms of giving IV corticosteroids, you're going to have a lot of the systemic effects and side effects that are going to occur. So basically the goal here is to decrease the inflammatory cells and decrease that mucus secretion. However, you're going to see a lot of other things happen as well. So a big thing you need to watch out for, if you remember from our endocrine talk, is what is the biggest risk for giving lots of extraneous steroids to patients. They're going to have a decrease in their HPA axis, which is that hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And so they're not going to have that intrinsic response to any type of stress like sepsis or surgery, et cetera. So just be careful in patients that come in that are on IV steroids long-term or even steroids at all for that matter. It can cause that HPA axis suppression like Tanner talked about, but more so here in the IV. You're also going to see the IV corticosteroids used for asthma patients that have an acute exacerbation when they have less than 30% of their lung function and they're not really responding well to the beta-2 agonist. So if you remember, the beta-2 agonist can have some short-term anti-inflammatory effects, but not long-term. And again, here, in order to decrease that inflammation as well, we're going to throw on this corticosteroid. The main IV drug that I usually think of for IV corticosteroids is going to be hydrocortisone. So that's our first-line IV corticosteroid to give. And it's basically due to having the most rapid onset of about five to six hours. I know that doesn't sound super fast onset compared to the other drugs we've talked about, but uh, it basically, you start to see effects on decreasing that inflammation in their lungs within that six hour period. In terms of oral corticosteroids, you can usually give prednisone. That's usually the, the number one drug that we would give orally. And again, with all these, you really want to watch for that HPA suppression that will occur. Next, let's talk about leukotriene modifiers. Leukotrienes basically is part of your immune system that will cause bronchoconstriction, inflammation, You'll get increased mucus secretion, all things that are bad for people with COPD or asthma. And so these modifiers will basically inhibit this pathway and decrease the amount of bronchoconstriction, inflammation, all those things that the leukotrienes normally cause. So examples of these would be Montelukast or Franlukast. And I feel like we see these all the time in the ICU along with some of these other medications that we give frequently, but this is acting on a little bit different pathway again, as this is attacking basically your immune response, which is causing all of this increased inflammation. And so the big thing you want to watch out for with these medications is hepatic injury. So just be monitoring their liver function tests as you're going through that. And so while the ones that Tanner just talked about were antagonists of this pathway, you can also give Zuluton, which is an inhibitor, and it basically blocks the synthesis of those leukotrienes to begin with. Next, we want to talk about anticholinergic agents. So we kind of briefly touched on this already, but basically these are muscarinic receptor antagonists. And so when you bind and agonize the muscarinic receptor in the bronchioles, it's going to cause bronchial constriction. And so our, our job here is basically to 
inhibit this so that we don't have that constriction, but we actually have dilation that occurs. And so ipatropium is the main short-acting drug that we're going to give as an anticholinergic agent. And it's used really for the maintenance of COPD and for COPD slash asthma exacerbations, especially because it's so short-acting. It's really good for the exacerbations. It increases the exercise tolerance and decreases the dyspnea that occurs in these patients, especially long-term. In terms of long-term anticholinergic agents, you could give teotropium, which is a long-acting anticholinergic agent, and it's usually used for COPD maintenance, but it can also be used for exacerbations as well, but you usually think of more of the short-term for the exacerbations. The nice thing about these drugs is when you give them through the inhaled route, there is poor absorption, and so you really don't see systemic side effects of having the anticholinergic agents, but you could have some slight side effects that occur. So let's think about it. If we're going to give an anticholinergic, what are some main things that we would see? We're going to see a dry mouth, some urinary retention, some pupillary dilation. So if you remember from our previous talk with the ophthalmic procedures, if you have a patient that has elevated intraocular pressure, then this may not be a good drug to give. But obviously, if you're having an exacerbation, then you're going to give it because breathing is more important in my opinion. But you can also have some blurry vision occur from this as well. So really anything that's going to have that systemic anticholinergic effect that you think about that we've talked in previous talks before. Next, let's talk about the mast cell stabilizers. These are useful when conventional medications aren't optimizing your patients. They're not going to be your first line treatment, but if these other ones that we've already talked about aren't successful, then you can move into these mast cell stabilizers. An example of this would be nidocromil. This will stabilize the submucosal and intraluminal mast cells and block the mediators that will basically cause the bronchoconstriction or the mucosal edema and increase secretions. So it'll work similarly to when we talked about the leukotriene modifiers as far as what it's doing. It's going to work on a slightly different pathway, but we're going to be hopefully seeing the same types of effects. It prevents bronchoconstriction, but important to remember, this is not a bronchodilator. So this is not increasing the effects that we want. This is just trying to limit the effects that we don't want. Next, we can talk about the phosphodiesterase inhibitors or the PDE4s. This will elevate your cyclic AMP levels in the inflammatory cells, which will reduce the release of your inflammatory mediators. With all of these, we're basically just trying to get at whatever's causing the inflammation. Where can we break that pathway? Where can we decrease the bronchoconstriction, the mucus production, which will optimize our patient, allow them to breathe easier? With asthmatic patients, theophylline reduces the number of eosinophils in the bronchial specimens. With COPD, theophylline will reduce the number of neutrophils in the sputum. So there's a slightly different mechanism of action here. Monitor theophylline closely because it can have some really nasty side effects, which occur if you have increased blood levels. So you can see these life-threatening side effects when you have a blood level greater than 20 milligrams per liter. You need it above 10 milligrams per liter to even see these treatment effects. And so this has a narrow therapeutic window. Signs and symptoms of toxicity include nausea vomiting. You can see metabolic acidosis. You can see low potassium, mag, phosphate, calcemia, so just decrease in all these different electrolytes. And then you may also have hypercalcemia. Example of this, other than the theophylline, would be the aminophylline. So next, we want to talk about some drugs that can be used that are known as ventilatory stimulants. So these aren't really used in COPD and asthma type patients just because it increases your breathing. And really, these patients are already kind of huffing and puffing, if you will. And so 
our main goal is to decrease the inflammation and open their airways in these patients, not really increase their work of breathing even more. These are more seen in patients at high altitudes that need to help that need help with just taking those big breaths to get more oxygen in. And so doxapram is the first one and it stimulates the carotid chemoreceptors. So if you remember, those are responsible for recognizing the changes in your blood gases and they will trigger you to breathe more. And so basically at high altitudes, this will also stimulate the medullary respiratory centers as well. So just know that it really just stimulates you to take take more breaths and bigger breaths. The other one that will also do this is acetazolamide, which really the big thing in the ICU that I gave this for was when the patient had some alkalosis and we wanted to bring them back down to that normal pH. So it makes sense that if you have a patient that is already a normal pH and you give this medication, it's going to cause some metabolic acidosis. And basically by doing that, it's going to stimulate your ventilation system to compensate. So that's how it's used to basically cause the patient to breathe more is by causing that metabolic acidosis and then stimulating them to breathe more to have a compensatory response in terms of ventilation. So again, this is used in high altitude sickness as well. So just think of ventilatory stimulants mainly used in high altitude situations, not really used for COPD and asthma patients. Next, let's talk about pulmonary arterial hypertension. First treatment for this that we'll see is the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor or the PDE5. Example of this that I've seen in the past is nitric oxide, and this will basically increase your cyclic GMP and smooth muscle, which will cause relaxation. Additionally, PDE5 causes inhibition in the pulmonary bed, which will induce vasodilation. Another example of this would be sildenafil or Viagra. And so often with these patients that are on chronic pulmonary arterial hypertension medications, you'll see that they'll have Viagra as part of their chronic med list. Another medication that you can give is prostaglandins. Prostaglandin is produced by the endothelial cells in the pulmonary circulation, and this directly relaxes pulmonary vascular smooth muscle by increasing intracellular cyclic AMP. An example of this would be your flow land. So you might see your patient come from home on this flow land. Remember, fear the flow land. So this is something that is going to take special care. If you're not familiar with flow land or not familiar with treating these medications, find someone to help you. Be very careful with these. You are not going to want to flush these lines. If you're switching them over to you know pumps there in the hospital, then there's very specific steps that you need to take as these can have really significant effects on your patient, especially if they've been treated with Flowland for a long period of time. The next one you can talk about is endothelian receptor antagonist. Endothelian 1 is a potent pulmonary vasoconstrictor, and this is produced heavily in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Basically, what these will do is block the release of the prostacyclin and nitric oxide from the endothelial cells. Awesome. So that really wraps up what we wanted to talk about today. It was more just a focus on the, the drugs themselves that will affect the respiratory system. There's a lot of disease processes that we didn't go into that we want to go into on later talks. But specifically, we just wanted to see what affects asthma and COPD, as well as some other medications that we can give and how that's going to affect our anesthesia care.